Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp and we are here for our podcast on HR. One of the things that uh, we increasingly hear from founders is how to scale companies, how to hire the right people, how to manage growing teams. And with me I have two people that really understand this problem. One of them is Matt Buckland, the head of talent at List. Uh, Matt single-handedly was part of the journey of scaling List from 60 to 120 people in the last six months. I mean, this is an insane amount of growth. And so he's got some amazing stories about how to manage that kind of growth. And then the other is uh, none other than Rob O'Donovan, uh, founder of Charlie HR, a seed camp company. And for those of you that are char using Charlie HR, uh, we'll know that it's a great tool to manage HR processes internally, everything from um, holiday times and also how, how people get to know each other. And one of the things that uh, he does is bring together both small organizations, anywhere between four and five people, all the way up to 170, 180 people. So he's got a lot of insight in these kinds of companies and they're growing really well right now. So with that, uh, let me jump straight into introductions. Matt, do you wanna maybe share a little bit about uh, kind of what you're doing as head of talent within List and kind of what the experience has been like in the last six months of this exponential growth? Sure. Yeah. So my background, I've been in hiring and talent for 15 years now, uh, which makes me about 10 years older than the average age of everyone else at List, um, which is always fun. Um, the other thing we've done, aside from all the growth, is put in place a lot of the policies, a lot of those things that have to be there for you to be a, a grown-up company. So we still call ourselves a startup, but really we're scaling now, I think. We're, we're in a different growth state. Um, we're just building a lot. So how to keep people happy now, how to measure those things, how we actually go about rewarding people fairly. And we're starting to ask ourselves some of those bigger company questions that mm. we didn't think of before. Excellent. Rob, maybe you, you want to share a little bit about the story of how you came about creating Charlie HR and what the ambition is for Charlie HR? Sure, exactly. So, so Charlie HR was really built, I guess, like, like lots of businesses are, out of a real pain point we had previously. So we built a number of different businesses. We, we kind of grew them collectively to sort of 40-odd people. And, and the whole driver was just being bogged down in a whole load of admin. And it wasn't just in HR and in a whole load of different contexts, but HR was specifically the one where we found we wanted to spend more time investing in our people and talking to them and building teams and a culture um, and less time playing around in, in spreadsheets, tracking holiday and time off and dealing with fiddly bits of payroll and, and inevitably making the mistakes that come with it. So I think that whole experience led us to look for a solution and we couldn't find an elegant solution that actually worked that wasn't going to cost the world and that's where Charlie HR came from so literally built to solve our own problems um, and, and to give away to, to small businesses for free to help them really not have the same challenges we had. Excellent so let's kick off our, our chat and deep dive by tackling one of the key questions that I think most people have which is hiring new talent just access to it and you know there's the old um, adage of, of you know if if you hire B people they'll hire C people or D people but if you hire A people um, you know they will always hire other A people but with that when you're scaling from 60 to 120 or when you look at companies that are very big and they need to hire multiple processes how do they manage that how have you seen companies manage that process of not only finding the right talent but also attracting it you know for a company like list where you know it's a tier one company and it's a company that's very well known and it's a high quality standard in terms of product what what are the things that you guys have seen work in that 
So I, I think at list, we're both gesturing to each other to who's <laughs> going to speak to this first. Um, list is in a great position because we have a great brand. So that em- employer brand is, is pretty good in the marketplace um, through the work that they've done to, to, to really kind of benchmark ourselves as a technical brand. So we're a, a fashion marketplace, but we don't sell ourselves on the fashion element to any new employee. It's always about the um, the engineering piece. So it's a great place to come for machine learning, for um, the, the search algorithms that we have, for all of this other great sort of deep engineering Python stuff. So we get, we get a lot of attraction in just the, the hardcore engineers which is great. Um, what that led to was we had loads of engineers and not many else to, to help them on the other side of the business. So we, we've righted that wrong. But we were never really involved in, I think, back in 96, McKinsey talked about the war for talent. Um, I've never really seen that. So anywhere I've been, I don't think there is this war for talent. Um, I think it's predicated by people who will look outwardly rather than inwardly first in candidate attraction. So they'll talk about how we can't possibly get that person because Google have scooped up all the great people um, without really asking serious questions of themselves and what they can do to attract those people. So how do they make themselves the best in that marketplace? Um, and that's, that's the harder question to ask. It's easier to say, well, we'll never get them because we don't pay enough, where that's your that's your one benchmark, but really what can you do to attract people? What really drives people? And considering those questions makes you a lot more attractive. Yeah, and that, that's actually a good tee up for the next question, which is demands of the best people are evolving. And and I don't know if, if maybe, um, Rob, you have a view on the companies that are on, on Charlie HR, how have you seen um, the sort of mission-driven companies coming up and sort of using what Matt said as a way of attracting new talent and even the 11 and some of the companies that you worked in in the past and and creating flexible working arrangements and how to manage those and what you've seen work and as, as well as for you matt in terms of what what kind of flexible working arrangements are necessary to attract these kinds of talent so i think from my perspective it goes far far beyond flexible working arrangements that that becomes kind of one thing which helps people maybe to mold their own lifestyles around their work rather than the other way around but i think that the more and more you speak to, it's it's partly a, a new generation thing, you know, a younger wave of talent that are coming through who've been far more exposed to different opportunities and different ideas and the ways that they want to live their life. And, and actually what they want out of a job is is far more, right? They, they don't just want something they can go and do. You know, fulfillment is high on their agenda and how they get a kick out of what they do, how it gives back to the world often is really important and ultimately how they learn. So. You can look at it from a number of different ways, but I think people are starting to broaden their horizons massively over what a good job looks like. I think that's really exciting for, for a lot of small businesses, but also really challenging. It's exciting because they can suddenly compete in ways that perhaps in the past they haven't been able to, because they can say, hey, actually being part of an eight-person team gives you a whole load of different things that being part of an 8,000-person company does in a very different way. Um, so it opens up a huge range of different opportunities to capitalise on. Um, and I think that the good businesses start to understand and learn quickly the kind of people that work well within their companies and then work out how to manufacture situations to, to attract them best. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I think I'm I'm old enough in terms of hiring to remember a time when uh, London was about investment banking only, and that was where you went to to go and to get a high paid job, and that was what they would do. They would make you work on, from a developer perspective, horrible code base mm-hmm. um, for a lot of money, and you would be okay with that because it was a horrible code base, but you were getting paid a lot of money, so there, it mitigated that boredom that you spent every day trying to patch together someone else's code. Now, uh, I think we're much more into that money. The, the money debate comes off the table quite quickly. So I think we're that, that's like the bottom. If, if there's a, a Maslow's hierarchy of just keeping people fed and watered, that money aspect, you take that off the table really quickly. And the way you sort of pitch yourself against other, against other businesses is now much more about sort of in line with Daniel Pink's autonomy, mastery and purpose. So um, are they going to learn? What things are they actually going to do? Who are they going to do those things with? Um, and then is it for the greater good of the world? This this is now the younger people get is becoming more and more. So Facebook making the world more open and connected, Google do no evil, these kind of things where we have these, these sort of mantras repeated that this is for the greater benefit of the world, not just come take your paycheck, leave. Um, and I think pulling those things out of your business and saying, this is what we offer, but taking that salary off the table straight away. So if you're hiring someone from Facebook, you know they're going to be at a premium. If you're hiring someone from an investment bank, well, they're going to be paid a lot. But what are the other levers that you can pull as a company? So will they have more impact in your business? Are they going to be more uh, well-rounded as an individual after working with you, for example? No, I just think it's one of the things that we've seen, which is really interesting, is that obviously fast growth businesses, this is a, is a classic example where you might join when it's 20 or 30 people and, and 12, 18 months later, it's plus 100, right? And that from a cultural perspective, but also from a who you're working with and a how you work is markedly different. And I think as we watch companies within Charlie scale, quickly they join in their 20 and even going from, you know, relatively small in, uh, incremental jumps, but 20 to 40 is still 100% in growth. The businesses change drastically. And then I think, the thing switches then and it's about retention. People that like joining and being part of a small working team and then suddenly an engineering team goes from five to 15 and they're working on different things and it's how you manage that because that must have been a big challenge for you guys. Yeah, and, and also the difference between um, engineering and the rest of the business. There's a definite divide. So um, the utility value of an engineer or those skill set that they bring is far greater the, than someone perhaps on the other side of the business or that there's demand in the marketplace for them. Mm. Um, so they feel, I think that's, at worst, it can lead to entitlement that they can remove their labor and go and demand a higher cost for that labor. Uh, but at best... I think the other parts of the businesses are learning from engineering. So some of the practices around sort of software development that have sort of seeped out into the rest of the businesses. So things like how technology is now the best form of communication. So that the whole of our business uses Slack, for example. Mm -hmm. The whole of our business supports OKRs, um, which is sort of Dell and IBM, but now Google, Microsoft have taken these things to the next level. But we use software tools to, to augment those practices. So I think right the way through our business, there's the technological backbone, which um, which is very different than uh, sort of the older organizations that are out there at the moment. And a step change, I think, for people joining. So if, if I take what you guys said and I distill it down to a, a, a form of culture, really, um, and you take some of the elements that you mentioned from Daniel Pink's book on Drive, you're kind of... You, you, most founders will be like, I get this, I need to create a culture and these are the attributes I can play with. But institutionalizing that culture is part of the process, right? And how do you scale that culture and how do you reiterate that? Um, I was, I was um, 
visiting Square's offices a, a while ago, and um, I was I was introduced to this idea that Jack Dorsey himself would uh, take the early founders and the early uh, employees of Square on on walks where he would kind of explain the culture. And so maybe you can you guys can share how is it that you should institutionalize that culture as part of kind of what you were alluding to earlier regarding bringing people on for something other than just a salary. How do you institutionalize that? How do you make that into a process? How do you get other people, once it's no longer the founder that's onboarding people, to have the same sort of uniformity? And how do you modify that as the company scales so that it doesn't create this division between engineering or marketing or whatever? Well, I think, I think the first thing to recognize is that it happens far, far, far beyond someone's first day, right? Like I think culture and and, and it's driven by the people. You can't have one thing without the other. So who you hire becomes massively important to what the culture becomes. Mm. So I think the, the, the kind of setting, if you like, for the culture of the business starts right when you start to hire someone the whole way through the interview process and, and right to the offer point. And you can often introduce various things that indicate ideas about whether they're the kind of people that will subscribe to a culture. And some people don't, right? I think this is the thing. Culture is different in different businesses. There's no right or wrong. There's no, this is the way it should be done. This is the way it shouldn't. You might have a personal preference, but ultimately different people align to certain things. And the, the second thing, which I always think, right, culture as a word irritates me because I think it's incredibly generalized. It's so broad and it's very, very hard to define. And I know that because someone asked me to define it about two years ago in one of our businesses, I said, you know, I'd like to go and think about culture and what we're doing and can we do it better? And, and you know, you know, they kind of came to me a week later and said, how are you getting on? And they're like, what, what, what actually is culture? What do you mean? And I was about to launch into some sort of spiel before realizing I didn't really know how to define it either. And it's difficult. And after thinking about it for a few days, the, the thing that came to us was like, the culture is the answer that, that one of your team gives down the pub on a Saturday night when someone says, how's work going? Yeah. I kind of felt in, in that instance, you have three different answers. The most often is the kind of indifferent, yeah, it's all right, cool, thanks, move on. You, you Then you have the kind of terrible, I, I hate it, ripping the hair out thing. And then on the flip side, right at the end, you have people who go, it's awesome, I love it, it's amazing. And it's, it's for your particular business and for your particular team, how do you get people to that answer? And for us, it was like, we want people to say, it's awesome, but it's really hard work. And that then became the driver. And well, how do we make people think this is awesome, but also that they're working hard and making stuff happen? Yeah, I think for one of the biggest crimes amongst its many crimes that HR has committed on the world is the recent adoption of culture as the get out of jail free card. So it's either we have a great culture and it's dismissed, so then they don't have to address anything, or they say, um, he's not a cultural fit as an excuse to get rid of someone for the same reason. But no one is really sort of great at defining that. Um, but it, this exists. These practices exist in the world, right? Anthropology tells us how to study a culture. What are those artifacts? So a great way that we did uh, in my time at Forward Partners was to think about what archetypes we would be and go through this kind of marketing mix. So we were like, I think we ended up with Sage and Explorer. And I'm like, okay, so if that's true, how do we live those values? What are those things? So how can we signify that out? Um, and what we have, what people often do is leap to the end of that process and say, look, we have a foosball table and a ping pong table, and that is our culture. And you're like, no, that's something you can buy in a, in a catalog. That will never be your culture. They might signify your culture. They, they are signifiers of the fact it is okay for your employees to play foosball or ping pong during the day. What is your culture? There's a, there's a deeper statement behind that fact. 
Now, I've worked in plenty of offices where that uh, foosball table is dusty um, and it's sort of the white elephant in the room. It's like, wow, we used to be this. And that is a big, that's the gravestone of our expanding culture. That, it's, it's there as a statement. So if you, go, if you think of it that way, like what is the signifier, what is the signifier, you can make great cultural statements, like a value statement, like I believe we should be sharing knowledge. That's great. What does that actually mean? How, how do we make that tangible? And that's the next step that a lot of people don't make. So you either end up at one end of the spectrum, which is words on a website, we're honest, we're happy, we're fun. You're like, well, that means nothing. Or the other end, the dusty foosball table. Somewhere in the middle is the truth of your cultural statement. Mm -hmm. So for sharing knowledge, for example, what does that actually mean to someone? They come in, um, maybe they are able to order any book they want from Amazon as long as they put it back on the shelf afterwards. That's a policy I've seen before. Mm -hmm. um, I worked for a high-frequency trading company out of Chicago, and they had a policy, the best travel policy I've ever seen. You could fly business class if you wanted, but if you didn't want to, they'd give you $1,000, and that was enough. They, they saved money on the ticket, and that $1,000 could be used to fly your partner with you or just someone else. And they were putting you up in a hotel and it didn't matter the occupancy. So you could fly your partner with you. And it was like, that's because we support family. They actually, that policy made it cheaper for them. In, in their world, everyone flew business, but now more and more of their, their stuff were opting for uh, a, a, an economy ticket and loving the fact that they were opting for an economy ticket. And that's a great cultural, here it is. What they also did was shave off a lot of the entitlement that came with working in a high-frequency trading company. So then they could say this to people, and people would either opt in or out based on a policy. But Matt, everything you're saying, I mean, this is brilliant. I had never heard that anecdote. This is awesome yeah. anecdote. But like, somebody has to engineer that, right? Like, yes. it, like it takes somebody's time away from trading yep. to be like, wait a second, I have a crafty idea. Yep. Let's do this, and the knock-on effect will be this, 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 this. And the way you spit it out, it sounds like it was like concocted, you know, yeah. like. A, but it, not, it, it probably took a lot of thinking and, and oh, yeah. sort of knock-on effects of these things. So whose role is that? And, and when is that something that you know founders who are product-led have the capacity to do at the early stage? Or does it require somebody of, of your caliber to walk in and be like, all right, guys, sit down with me, walk me through your culture. Aha, here's an idea. But a lot of it starts out, if you're eight people in a room with the founder, mm -hmm. you are getting your cultural cues without them being written down on a wall. So Facebook might have ship code and move fast and break things written on the wall. But originally, they were things that, that people said in the office. Now they are enshrined, but they were things that people said to each other. Mm -hmm. um, you get your cultural cues from behaviors. So if you're in a room with eight people and the founder picks up the phone and says, yo, instead of good morning, this kind of stuff, you have a formality cue. There, that people will adopt around you. And I think a lot of founders that I've encountered don't really realize that they have that weight. There is a psychological weight in their behavior. So how accessible are they? Um, I worked for a company called ThoughtWorks before, and the founder there, a guy called Roy Singham, very famously used to give out his mobile number, his personal cell phone, and people would drunk dial him at night. I've got a great idea. They were in the pub, like, you should do this. He was totally open to that. You could do that. That was a cultural norm of ThoughtWorks. And he was there, 3 a.m. <laughs> you know, yes, that sounds like a great idea. Tell me when you're sober. But those things existed. So those practices are formed. Later on, it's how you retroactively fit. Like, well, what does that mean? How can we shape that for people who don't have that one-on-one -on -one interaction but are coming into this business? And people will learn from each other. They get those cues as well. So here's an interesting thing that, you, you know, this, this learning from this, um, it's, it's actually quite interesting because one of the things that you guys do is 
take and organize these processes and then help people understand how this should be implemented in an organization. You said two words, you said formality and you said accessible and there's probably a slew of others, right? And let's just call these like tags mm -hmm. that somebody like you would walk into an organization, be like, let me see where this organization is in the formality spectrum. Let me see where this organization is in the accessible spectrum. And that means that you need an experience like yours, Matt, to be able to sort of categorize this organization. Let's say when you came into a list that 60 employees, and then institutionalize that culture to help scale it for under 20 and bring them on board. But Rob, how is, how is software potentially going to be able to enable that in a way where that's categorized and, and, and institutionalized far earlier in the organization's lifetime without having to resort to like somebody coming in with the experience that Matt has a little later and perhaps putting more leverage on earlier and smaller teams? I think a lot of it comes down to the feedback on what's actually going on. And I think just to, to go back to the earlier point briefly, I think you're absolutely right. Everything starts with the founders and culture eminently evades from them. And that's what builds it at the beginning. And it's then how you communicate it and roll it out. I think the challenge or, or to your earlier question is that I think the biggest misconception is it then becomes somebody's responsibility. Someone then looks after the culture in the organization and, and we've tried that in the past and it doesn't work. It's everyone has to commit to it and everyone is responsible for ensuring that, that it stays up to scratch. Otherwise, it's just like one other initiative in the business. So it dies as quickly or, or far more quickly than it can be created. Um, and I think it's important that everyone takes ownership and responsibility for laying it out. But I think the key thing was going back to, to two points. One is around behavior and one is communication because ultimately that's how culture manifests itself is in the way that people behave and importantly the way they behave not just in the room with their colleagues but the way they behave when their colleagues aren't in the room and the way they behave when they're with clients and they behave at, at any stage so I think behavior becomes really important and it's then how you can categorize and communicate what good behaviors are and what less good behaviors are and I think that's difficult but with tools and software one of the things that where I think can become really useful is in this feedback loop, right? Which is an understanding how to quickly and easily communicate what's going on with the business right across the different the different teams and different peers. And I think one of the things that I've been really interested in recently is this whole idea that often in, in startups, founders are incredibly smart, you know, double firsts from every university under the sun and MBA at Harvard to throw in just for fun. Um, and often, not always the case. I won't go as far to say that these are always sort of inverse proportion, but often your IQ doesn't necessarily go with the ability or a high ability to have a good awareness and understanding emotionally and empathetically of what's going on within the team. I think particularly within HR tech, for want of a better term, um, there are a lot of these tools that are surfacing to kind of say, well, how can we turn this into stuff that's data that people can understand, particularly when you're going very quickly and you've got 120 people, how can we turn the way that people are feeling about the business, the way that people are behaving within the business, the way that people are interacting with each other into numbers? Because then we can understand numbers and we can analyze and see what works and what doesn't. And that I think it's too early, if I'm honest, to tell whether anyone's doing that really successfully or not, but it's starting to happen. And I think, I don't know if you guys have used any tools, Matt, or- Yeah, so, so I mentioned um, our adoption of OKRs uh, the understanding of OKRs across the business was quite ethereal. You know, you read a few posts online, it says, well, this seems good. You know, we, we set stretch goals, we've got key results underneath, we know when we'll achieve them. But it wasn't until we embedded it with the tool that we set up the practices that are around this. So we went for a tool called Seven Geese. 
It uh, allows you to check in to your objective weekly and reminds you. So you have sliders, I am 10% more, I'm 10% more, this kind of stuff. And they all roll up. So everyone's objectives are completely transparent. So again, it informs transparency as well. So it, it, it's almost like a, the tool to shape the behavior. The behavior is the culture to go back to your point. Um, but how do we know other, as we scale, you know, we're, we're 120 now, I think just over. So we're rapidly approaching, um, Dunbar's number. So you can't know all the people in the building anymore. So it's like, you're not going to interact with these people every day. We have another problem because we have different floors. So if you come in, you know, go up to your fourth floor desk, you could not see anyone the whole day. Um, you could have that day. You could just be with the same five people. So how do we get that sense of like, how are you feeling on your team? There are great tools now to do this. Um, so it used to be sort of employee engagement, they used to call it at the big corporations. And once a year, you'd get a survey and it would just be hell because it'd be like, how have you felt the last 12 months? And it's like, well, I don't remember what I ate for breakfast last week. So how did I feel last July? I have no clue. Um, these tools now are taking their, it's almost like analytics sort of uh, like bioanalytics, like wearing an Apple watch for your business. So instead of your heartbeat, you can now have a happiness metric for your business. Are you happy? And across these metrics, so there are loads of these tools, um, mood map, uh, we use office vibe, um, and there are more and more all the time, but they give you this suite of metrics down to the group level. Like there is an issue in this team they, we can ask them a battery of questions. Each week, I think we ask four questions, but the quality of data you get from those four questions, now we can say that that team doesn't feel that they're, we're accessing their personal growth enough. What can we do? Well, we can go to them and say, look, these are the training that you can do. Do you guys want to do this? Well, they're just not happy. So then it's like, I'm going to go and talk to those guys and see what's wrong. Um, personal growth, wellness. There's just like 12 different metrics that we can have. And it's all from just different questions. But I think what has happened in HR tech, which is great for Charlie as well, is that HR tech has really come of age and now it's much more usable than it was ever. So HR tech of old is ugly, bloated, disgusting software that was sort of forced on you and you'd have really year-long contracts. It's only in the last year and a half, maybe, that HR tech has caught up with the rest of tech as a whole. So we still see people slinging solutions that are just awful, but occasionally you'll come across something which is like, oh, this is how it's supposed to be. So things like onboarding in Charlie is, is absolutely fantastic. This, you get your new employee, they're going through a slideshow basically, but you, you are creating that. So it's something, it's a communication of your culture. It's very soft. It's almost invasive because they're doing it before they start. You're drip feeding that before you get involved. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the amount of data they see, so they know when it's everyone else's birthday, they know who's on holiday, they know all of this stuff just from a dashboard. So in that way, it's sort of taking a social feed and making that the platform. And that's f a, incredibly different from HR tech of old, which was, it looks like a form, it smells like a form, it's a form, fill in the form, go back to your desk. And that was HR tech. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of forced on people. But now that transparency that the tool set encourages is actually moving faster than the people in HR. Mm. I think it's also, and I hope, encouraging companies that of a smaller size to start engaging with these things earlier. But I think we kind of alluded to it at the start, there's a there's a time when companies, you know, grow up in inverted commas and therefore start thinking, oh, suddenly it's time to start looking at HR and suddenly we need process and suddenly we need systems. And actually, the more we can do to encourage people to be thinking about this earlier on, because it's it's 
you know, there's this toxic kind of thing. Unfortunately, like like so many things that you work so hard at, they can be unraveled in, in a moment like a string ball. Um, and a lot of the things we're talking about at Charlie is that people often, you know, when you, when you start talking to them and they're a small company, they don't have the kind of problems yet. You know, it's relatively easy to manage a few things when you're four, five, six people, maybe even when you're 10, 15. But suddenly it gets to the point when it breaks and it's far more hassle and energy to deal with once it's broken than when it's not. So that's one thing from our from from kind of our context but particularly when you're looking at culture as an overall uh, and and just just building effective teams the earlier you can start to acknowledge the kind of things you might need to be doing as you scale the more likelihood you are to be able to take the best advantage of it as you do so how do you I mean, maybe you maybe you don't but like the friends that you you onboard onto charlie hr maybe the companies that you work closely with just within your close social network how do you help them um what are the things that you've noticed that they kind of don't get quite right that you kind of have to like help them think through? Like, for example, the onboarding process, how do you map that? And I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that our audience is a mix of sort of medium stage companies, but also early stage companies. And they're probably like, after listening to, to your arguments, they're probably like, oh, I really should get on this. But, you know, cataloging that and starting that process. And then even with the onboarding portions of Charlie HR, like you still have to craft that, you know, like when, when I was doing it for Seedcamp, we use Charlie HR and I love it for tracking where everybody's is and approving things and, and having uh, the calendar feed on intermingled within Gmail and all those great features that it has. But I was still kind of to some extent trying to figure out like, how do I distill down the elements that define us into something that I can help onboard somebody? And how, how, how do you recommend somebody go through that procedurally? So actually onboarding onto the software. Mm. Well, I think what, what we usually find, and, and everyone's often embarrassed when we speak to them, but then slightly comforted when we tell them that most companies are exactly the same, is that everyone starts off and doesn't really think about it. So you collect scraps of information from all the different employees as you as you take them on. Some are in paper form, some are on emails, some are printed passport copies sent in the post. It's extraordinarily archaic for often when we're talking to extremely technologically minded and savvy businesses. I think the thing that most realize quite quickly is that the data that you're holding is extremely sensitive, right? more sensitive than, than anything, more sensitive than the banks hold individuals. You, as an employer, literally have more data on that individual than anyone else in the world. Um, I think what suddenly shocks people once they realize that is that they're not necessarily looking after it in the most sensible way forward. So that usually helps people to understand the importance of, of getting these things together and consolidated in a place which makes sense. And I guess there's always a there's always a phase of implementing a process and implementing a system can take a bit of time and it's a bit of hard work. But I guess it comes back to what I said to earlier, right? It's it's much easier to do that early doors and get it rolling than it is to either solve a problem further down the line um, or actually implement it when you're more number of people. Mm. And for you, Matt, when you were when you walked into the door at 60 employees and your job was, all right, let's help get this to 120. What was your first month? What did you do for your first month? What was the first month like? Wow. Um, so starting on my first day, I was told to arrive an hour earlier than I should have been. Uh, my laptop wasn't ready. Um, <laughs> I had, I think I, I had to, un, I had to load stuff onto my laptop myself, that kind of stuff. So there's that kind of, I think in defining an onboarding process, it's like, what's the worst this could be? 
Uh, and I've worked somewhere where someone turned up for their first day and no one knew who he was and couldn't remember hiring him because mm-hmm. his notice period was three months. They'd just completely forgotten. But this is this is probably not that unusual. In all defense it's not, to Chris, yeah. probably this is, no, no. this is not this wasn't, unusual. This wasn't Chris. This is, yeah. so, so how do you get, I, I think it's iterative, like any process. It's like, what would the best process be? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen, I've seen companies do amazing things with onboarding. So you learn so much about the hiring process and you learn that, that flow through. Like we had a guy at one company whose wife was pregnant and during his three month notice period, the baby was born. So we sent him a branded baby grow. Now that is either how you think of it. That's either, geez, that's a bit sleazy or wow, these guys really care. We were lucky. He went on side that thought we really cared. <laughs> but, but that sort of stuff is you're keeping in touch. So that would be my first thing. It's not just hire and then two months later they're going to arrive. Um, the preparation before people arrive is absolutely tantamount and all this sort of stuff. So my first month at List was looking at taking it as a journey from a new employee. I was lucky because I'm my own guinea pig. Like, what did I do at this point? How could that have improved? How do we get to this point? How can I improve that? What were my interactions? So in my first day, who am I meeting? Is that too much to take on? When do I get that first interaction with the founder um, to, to get some of that? That 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 kind of cultural indoctrination mm-hmm. is is massively important and the best person that comes from is your founder so we've set up sort of onboarding um with i think they had they have they currently happen once a month so all the new hires in that month will meet in a room with chris he'll talk them through um their values deck how they came to these values but he also adds it's the bits in between that people love and that's how he remembers him and seb and igor struggling one night with something to fix something it's how they bought a terrible domain name and then abandoned it it's all of these little side stories that actually shape it and make it more human that you want to be a part of it's not just i want to be a part of that powerpoint deck mm-hmm. um, but it's iterative all the way through so we're still improving it so if we're bringing people on board should we let them choose their own laptop setup can we do that beforehand can we do that with a software tool well, yeah, we can. So we can send them a type form, which will ca- capture all of this data. And then we can do that. We can do that in Charlie as well. Um, so we can actually capture all of this. So we know all of this in the first day. Um, now we have a catalyst system, catalyst, YST, of course. Um, and we do that. So you have a buddy on your first day. They'll take you around, you'll meet everyone. Now we're looking at that and thinking, well, that's a lot of people to meet in your first day and forget their names. Maybe mm. we break it up. Um, you go out for lunch with your team on the first day, mm. that sort of stuff. So all of these are sort of benchmarks in, in one onboarding process. And it's not that difficult to do because they become the norm so quickly mm-hmm. because the next catalyst is the person for the new, the new start of the mm. next week, especially if you're high growth. Um, it's important to get those things locked in so that everyone has a great onboarding experience because you don't want a two-tier or even three-tier system. Mm. Mm. No, that's very, very useful. And, and to some extent, um, you know, kind of probably founders should think this is a full-time job I mean, just to think through these ideas. I mean, everything you've just described, I mean, shit, I'm listening to you and thinking, crap, I need to do that <laughs> as well, you know? Although I, I, we were just onboarding somebody today and I saw that they have a T-shirt and they have like cool. a yeah. copy of different things. So, that, you know, we're, we're definitely working on that. But, you know, what what um what are the other things that startups fail to get right? I mean, in terms of like, um, you know, the, the attributes maybe the founders have, you know, emotional, uh, emotional awareness. What are the things that perhaps you've seen be part of that pitfalls that and how would you neutralize them? 
I had one, which is uh, the one I'm currently sort of the bane of my existence, not here, but for others. So I also talk to a lot of other recruiters in startups. And one of the things that the founders do, and I don't know if this is, if you've seen this, Rob, as well, is that they hire by delegation. So if you're a very small company and you say, I'm doing marketing at the moment, but I want a marketer, Mm -hmm. you'll hire someone. If your one channel is LinkedIn ads, you'll go out and you'll find someone who's really good at LinkedIn ads, Mm -hmm. whatever that channel is, or paid, just Mm -hmm. paid search. I'm going to hire that person. But you haven't stopped to consider that there's a wealth of other stuff you could be doing as well. So instead of going to market with what is possible, you go with what are you doing now? And that's incredibly limiting. And I've seen that a lot where you think Mm -hmm. this is what we need without asking what could we get. Mm. That's one of my big ones. Mm. Yeah, I think one of the things that we've seen quite a lot is and organizations need very, very different things, depending on what stage they're at, but just generally, right? If we believe in the idea that a lot of culture emanates from the founders, then all founders are different and therefore everyone has their own unique thread and DNA. And I think two of the things that that I see often go wrong is one is just forgetting what that is um, and forgetting that culture isn't something you have to work on every single day because at the start it seems easy right when yep. you're a few people around the table that's what the culture is no one thinks about the values like you said no one sticks something on a wall that's just why you get out of bed in the morning and that's what's fun and, and forgetting that actually as the company grows as the business grows you have to iterate that 100% but you also have to really invest time and attention ensuring that it becomes a core structure the second is then as you as you grow and you start to bring other people into the business, I always have this way up between experience and naivety because I think that sometimes experience is overvalued and, and naivety the opposite. I think sometimes experience and it means your skill set might be high, but you come in with a very clear way of what you think works and, and how and why. Um, and sometimes I think that's really dangerous, particularly when you're in a fast moving startup-based environment where actually you're trying to change things you're trying to do things differently almost by default um so having an idea that things are done in a specific way um can sometimes counteract that and and, yeah yeah, and on the other side actually having people that are that are quite naive and quite you know green in this environment is great because if you give them the license to actually ask questions and not just answer them with but like actually ask why you do things a certain way um even if they've no kind of experience in doing it or no right I suppose in some context to question it you start to question yourself you start to unwind those things it's, about it. it's interesting because even that license that permission to mm. ask why for a new employee has to be granted at some level there has to be a cue that that's okay so cueing that very early on making someone like you can ask me anything you can tell me anything and stating it explicitly that license is so important so we've encountered it with things like asking for feedback and you get nothing of any any real value. But then you're, okay, it's anonymous feedback, and you'll suddenly get this raft of information, and you're like, that's really great stuff, but why didn't they feel it was okay to put their names to it? And I'm like, it doesn't matter why. Don't ask yourself that question. Work on the feedback. They'll increase their comfort levels, and then they'll be okay to be non-anonymous. But if you're concerned with that kind of the, the structures, it's like solve for the solve for the, the actual problem, not just a symptom. So I, I think just two points on that. The, I think a, a new team member is probably the most valuable thing the business has for the first month or two that they're there. The most valuable thing. And we say this to every single person that starts because they don't know anything yet. Yeah. 
So they can come in and animals just like ask why, why, why every single time. And if anyone ever says to you, they don't know, like, that's good, that's good. It's no one's problem, right? But clearly we're doing something and somebody somewhere doesn't know why. And that might mean that it worked six months ago, but it doesn't work anymore. It could mean it still works. But it's, it's a really, really good opportunity. So suddenly, it's also really nice for someone new to the team to be like, you are the most valuable person in the business right now because you can question everything. And the second, I have hundreds of arguments with peers around, around anonymous feedback. And I think it's, it's, it's a really interesting concept. And I speak to so many people who say it's absolutely critical. People can't speak their mind unless you give them the ability to do so without putting their name to it. But, but personally, in our business, I've always had an issue with it because I've always felt that if people need to hide behind the door to tell you what they think, then that might be indicative of a system. That's you. That's the CEO's blinkers right there. That's the psychological <laughs> weight that you don't attribute to you being in the room. So that's what we have as well. It's this, well, why can't you tell me anything? I'm just me. I'm human. It's like, no, because even if you say this is the flattest structured thing in the world, people will attribute hierarchy. They always will see it. You've given them a job. You could take that job away. You never would. But all those questions, that kind of stuff, those building blocks are in their head all the time. So we have a, we have a great system. Office Vibe is a brilliant system for this because you can ask an anonymous question. You can get an answer from your manager or the, the company owner. We'll just write to you. You can see who's answering. At any point, you can click that and say, I'm not anonymous anymore. This makes sense. And we see people ask the anonymous question, get the feedback. There's a couple interactions and then they'll go non-anonymous and say, okay, it makes sense for me to be not anonymous now. And it's that, but it, it's, it's hard. And hopefully you, the end goal, I think is completely open is, is back to Roy Singham at ThoughtWorks, drunk dialing at 3 a.m., that kind of stuff, total accessibility and, and total sort of, I can do this. This is okay. But those things take time to bed in especially when we've got and most startups will be in the same place i think we've got a lot of people who are first second jobbers mm. who have weird levels of like what work means and they see this kind of work throughout sort of how hollywood portrays work is it in an office in a cubicle there are levels of formality mm. it's your boss that kind of stuff so even they're taking their cues from outside it's like the socialization process of work has happened before if their current experience is school well then you're a teacher not not their not their peer mm. to just so i i no no I, I find this stuff fascinating and i think maybe in the past in previous businesses everyone's been very young and very new and so yeah. it's very easy to shape the way that people see their environment uh, it goes back to that you know naivety versus the experience thing but i think the idea that it takes time is only because you lose it somewhere in the middle yeah because when there's six people in a room you can't do anonymous feedback Everyone knows who each other no. is. You know each other, so you, you can try. If you're having a bad day, look but at his face. Exactly. Yeah. Well, whatever system you use, someone's going to know who you are. So what you're suggesting is by the idea that it takes time is that somewhere between 10, 12, 15 people and 50, 60, 70, yeah. you lose it. And I think that, that I'm not saying it's easy by any stretch, but I think if you can avoid losing it in the first place, then you tend to reach the goal a bit quicker. And one of the, one of the feedback we get a lot from new starters in our, in our businesses, we have feedback sewn through the middle of everything, almost to the point that it's painful. And actually, that's what a lot of new people say. They say, it's actually really intimidating because all of a sudden you get feedback immediately. It's not good stuff, right? No one beats around the bush. There's no shit sandwich, right? Like it's all quite upfront. Um, and that's quite a hard hurdle to jump. But then once you're into it, you realize everyone's doing it for the right reasons. It's led from the, from the, the top. So everyone gets it, feeds it back across different, you know, teams, et cetera. So, I mean, like, I think it's really, really hard to do. And I think we've made a massively conscious effort to do it in our businesses. And I'm sure we're not doing it perfectly, but I think 
I hopefully that as we scale, we'll be able to prove that it can happen. Talk, talking about um, how to implement things and and new ways of doing things, you know, some of the cutting edge thinking around organizations is probably being invented right now by startups. But you know, there's also foundations that we can build on, whether it be psychological ones or organizational ones. And I'm just going to get some book recommendations from you guys. Um, I know that uh, one of the ones that you had sent over that you had mentioned. Maybe you can talk a little bit about it uh, by, by Frederick. And then uh, you mentioned Drive. Yep. And, and maybe you can just uh, talk a little bit about what each one and why you think it's interesting. So the Frederick Lelubert Reinventing Organizations, it, it's just a fascinating kind of documentation of how businesses and organizations have evolved in the past and, and how it, it suggests they might evolve in the future. And a lot of it's very... Um, very symbiotic with the stuff that Pink's saying around mastery, autonomy and purpose and moving towards self-managed teams and starting to become, uh, starting to use examples of companies that are ripping out uh, the the conventional structure of the, the hierarchical way that businesses are managed and, and trying new things. And I think, um, you know, Holoxy is, is one of the ones in the States that may or may not have read about. I think all of this stuff is good. I think the things that are important is that different things work in different ways for different businesses with different personalities, different goals and different team structures. Um, so I don't ever think that there's one right or wrong, but what I do think is emerging is a lot of people that are saying, hey, actually, like, we don't have to do this org chart way. Actually, we, we can design something else. If it feels right, or if we think there's a more efficient way of doing it, let's give it a go. Mm. Um, and that's what's really exciting, because out of that is what comes new ideas and new ways of building teams which are more effective and more efficient. Yeah, so, so I think I've, I mentioned Drive there. Um, it's pretty simplistic, autonomy, mastery, purpose, but it's a, a way into thinking about it. Um, I think it's been quite helpful because if in kind of def, def, defining why people are motivated to do things, it's a good jumping off point into that. Um, I'd also echo that, that, that there's not much new there's a lot of old thinking that we can learn from. There's a guy who writes for, I think, Business Insider occasionally called Gary Hamill. Uh, and Hamill is a management consultant and talks about leadership, but also talks a lot about businesses that already exist, pre predominantly in the States, um, and their management structures, how they're, how they're structured. He talks about things like results-only work environments. So these row environments. So timekeeping is nothing to these organizations. You can come and go as you please because you've already established what you need to accomplish. So as long as you accomplish those things, your time is your own. Um, and certain people, they are attractive to certain people. But these are very traditional businesses. He talks about a, a carrot farm somewhere that is a, a row environment. So it's like you'd, you'd have thought that that would have been production and it would have that manufacturing mindset. But no, it doesn't matter. Come and go as you please. And these are businesses at every stage. It's not just the new startup and, and the sort of... There's a danger that um, we move into a fad so we get to this like holacracy is going to be the next thing. Let's all let's all adopt holacracy, mm -hmm. and arguably that's not worked well um, yes. in its current form. Um, but I think that there's a danger of copy paste policy or copy paste organizational culture where you you read um, an article and say I'm going to adopt this thing and put it into my business without realizing that it's written by someone retroactively. Mm. So they have, they're have they not sharing all of the pain and all mm. of the learning. They're not sharing why it worked, mm. what, did, what bits didn't work, and how they sort of chipped away at that to make the beautiful sculpture at the end. Instead, you're thinking, well, if we do this, it will behave in that way. Um, I'd say read everything, um, as much as you can ingest. Um, one of the things I gave my team to read for hiring was um, Thaler, 
So he wrote nudge and then misbehaving. Mm. So in negotiating salaries and negotiating options with people, Thaler is a better case study than anything I've ever read because people don't think economically. So what is it? What is the thing that that person values most? Is it their family life? Well, I'm, now if I want them to join me, I'm going to talk about um, the, the flexible working hours. They don't care any more than that. If they're just signing a mortgage, options may be less so. So they want less options, more salary on that. I can key that straight away. I know that. And I have that conversation before their interview. I want to know those things before so that you're selling this to the right point. Mm. And at that point, I mean, you can... It doesn't matter where they work, how much they earn, if you're hitting on those particular points. Mm. But I don't think there's any... So, so, so drive is a good example because it tries to maintain this model is true for everyone, autonomy, mastery, purpose. But actually, mastery it, at, a, at a more junior level is actually the journey of mastery. So how are you developing that person? Mm. It's not really, I want to be the expert in this, mm. um, which you get at the higher levels. Mm. So I think it, it, it's going to be shaped by your organization, but I'd say read a lot. Failure would be a good one. Pink would be a good one. Signing orgs is a good one. There's one last one to add, and it's less about necessarily organizations, but I find it fascinating. By a guy called Sean Aker, and it's called The Happiness Advantage. And his whole, uh, he's done loads of studies on this stuff to essentially prove that a lot of us go around our lives thinking that we're in pursuit of this evasive thing called happiness, and we find it by becoming successful. And so once we achieve this thing, or once we get to this goal, suddenly over the hill, there's this big shining star of happiness. And actually, the things that they've proven is that it's actually kind of the other way around, right? And actually, the happier we are, the more productive, effective, and confident we are, and actually, the more likely we are to become successful. Mm. And, I, and it's, this is a bit of a, a loose tangent, but I do think it becomes really important then to the way that companies begin to operate um, and to start to imagine ways where actually, if we can really invest in the health and the well-being of the teams who are there to, to, to build the business, um, then the returns are really palpable. Excellent. Well, guys, tons of great wisdom here, and I wish we could continue going on, but um, we've hit uh, we've hit the end of the podcast, and maybe we can even score a part two at some point. But thanks for joining again, Rob and Matt, and until next time, guys, bye.